Good to see you this morning. Um, all of us have different interests in life that sometimes we've studied about. Uh, when I was in college, um, I got a minor in psychology because I really like to understand how people think. You know what a minor means, though? Basically, it means you have some information, but not enough to be helpful. And that's what a minor is. And uh, so that's kind of what the deal is. But I remember reading uh, a book called, uh, actually a case study. It was a book-length case study called The Three Christ of Ypsilanti. And uh, it was actually done by a guy named Milton Rokich. And it concerned an experiment that was done with uh, three guys in a uh, mental facility in Ypsilanti, uh, Michigan, um, Many years ago, the, the three guys' names were Clyde, Joseph, and Leon. That's just their first names. Um, they all had a special. They were all uh, paranoid schizophrenics. And uh, what they all did is they all believed that they were Jesus Christ. I mean, that was their paranoia. Uh, so he decided the way to deal with this and the way to, uh, to, try to try to study this case was to put them in the same room with each other and see how they interacted. You know, three Jesuses in the same room. And so he said it was really interesting. It kind of was funny in the book. Uh, I remember that was one of the most interesting case studies I ever studied uh, because they put them in a room and, you know, and, and uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Rokic would talk to them and interact with them as a, in, in a group setting. And he would say, you know, one of the guys would say something like, uh, you know, so whatever it happened to be saying. And then he would say, well, how do you know that? And the guy would say, well, God told me. And then one of the other guys in the room would say, well, no, I didn't. And, and so they had this kind of like really interesting conversation going back and forth because they all thought they were God. Uh, and, and it was just this really interesting uh, conversation going on. Uh, today we're going to talk about that, this whole thing about uh, uh, there is a God and we're not it. There is a God and we're not it. Um, we have seen uh, throughout our study of the story, and if you're here today for the first time or the first time in a while, what we've been doing is going through a, a study of, of God's Word going to the beginning all the way to the end. We're in chapter 18 of 31 chapters. And uh, what we're going to be doing is we've been looking at uh, using a, a resource called the story, which basically is a chronological a condensed Bible. And what it does, it takes portions of Scripture in a chronological order as it actually happened because many times, even though the Bible is somewhat chronological, it's not always. Sometimes it's topical. And especially where we are right now, in the prophets, it tends to go jump it back and forth. We might have two or three different uh, books, or maybe a prophet here and, a, and another place somewhere else that kind of goes together. And so that's what we've been looking at. Today we're in chapter 18 of the story, uh, talking about uh, the main characters are some guys, one named Daniel, another called uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, then there's some other characters as well in the story. And if this week, if you read the story already, and I encourage you to do that uh, each week, uh, if you haven't read it already, if you're in a small group, need to read it before your small group, whenever that might be. This week, if you read the story, you've read chapters 1, 2, 3, chapter 6 of the book of Daniel. You've also read chapters 29 through 31 of the book of Jeremiah. So it's not really a ton of scripture, but it kind of goes together. So you see it's kind of jumping around a little bit sometimes. But as we've talked about this to bring you up to date, uh, we've been studying how the prophets basically were sent to warn the people of idolatry. And we've discovered that through idolatry may seem antiquated and sometimes not relevant for us. It's really what's behind the sins that we all struggle with. And that's the sense of discouragement, the sense of lack of purpose and passion in life. Any sin we think about, we talked about these over the last few weeks, we can make them into an idol. And uh, as we've been reading the story, last week we were introduced to this guy named Nebuchadnezzar, who was a king, and he's going to be the main character I want to talk about, he and Daniel today, uh, in the story. And what has been happening is, in the story, as we've been reading through Scripture, is we've seen that the, that the nation of Israel, 
as they've gone through their history, came to a place when it was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was made up of ten of the tribes of Israel, and the southern kingdom two tribes. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom was called Israel. And we've already talked about a few weeks ago about how the northern kingdom was basically overtaken by a group called the Assyrians. And then as they took them over, they kind of like were wiped out and they were dispersed amongst all the uh, that whole region, amongst the people that, that overcame them. And we never really hear from them again. But then we kind of focused our, shifted our attention to the southern kingdom. And that southern kingdom, Judah, is where Jerusalem is located and some other place, things are located there. And what happened is, is we saw that they, for a while, were all right, even though they were just as about as wicked as the northern kingdom. But they did have one king that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that kind of God withheld his hand of uh, judgment at the time. But then eventually, they're overtaken by a group called the Babylonians. And that's kind of where we are in the story right now. The Babylonians uh, uh, were the people, and Nebuchadnezzar was their king. Uh, that's who we're going to be talking about today. And as we read the story of Nebuchadnezzar, we were struck uh, with a truth, and I was at least, that, that um, every false god, no matter what you call it, the god of pleasure, the god of money, the god of success, the god of food, the god of power, every false god in our lives really can go by one name. And that's the god of me, the god of me. Um, we either ser- serve God or we serve ourselves. So uh, idolatry is ultimately choosing myself over God, therefore making myself God. And so today we're going to be looking at that. Now, Ezekiel, another prophet, spoke about it this way. He says this, In your great pride you claim, I am a God. I sit on a divine throne in the heart of the sea. But you're only a man and not a God, though you boast that you are a God. So today, as I shared with you, the message basically is this. There is a God, and you're not it. I'm not it. There is a God. Now, last week as we looked at uh, Nebuchadnezzar, we just kind of introduced him, but I want to talk about him a little bit more today. But I also want to talk about why this is so important because this is so prevalent. We will see that Nebuchadnezzar is the ultimate narcissist. Uh, a narcissist is someone who's just basically self-absorbed. It's all about me. It's just totally self-absorbed. And, and, and Nebuchadnezzar was the ultimate uh, uh, narcissist. Actually, in the psychology field, there's a test called the Narcissistic Personality Inventory, or the NPI, as it's commonly called. And what it is, it, it's, it's a test done to see people's level of self-absorption, how much they're focused on themselves, which is not good, by the way, okay? If, if you if it was a question about that, it's not good to be too self-absorbed in your life. And the, the crazy thing over the last 40 to 50 years, what's happened is, as they, people have taken this test throughout the United States, uh, what happened is the level of narcissism has grown exponentially in our culture. Does that surprise anybody? Uh, not really. It shouldn't surprise you. I think that's one of the reasons we're in a mess we are as a country sometimes is because of that level of self-absorption, that level of greed. But uh, it's interesting that, that, that it's gone up. And when people take the test, this test, basically they're given some comments that they have to respond to, and they agree or disagree on a scale of one to five. Uh, but whether you strongly agree or just lo- not, don't agree too much with this with this uh, question. So some of the comments are things like this. Uh, if I ruled the world, it would be a better place. <laughs> Do you agree with that on a scale of one to five? Five being, you know, really strongly, one being, no. Okay. Another question is, I think I'm a very special person. Okay. Another one is this. I can live any way I want to and no one has the right to do what they want with me they don't know anything they, they have no one has the right to tell me what to do i agree one to five i, I, I can do i can be anything i want to be if i really work at it 
scale of one to five. Those are just some of the questions that are on that test. Now, as, as psychologists have begun to understand, as sociologists have begun to understand that this is a growing trend in our culture, you know, one of the things they naturally do is what? They study to find out why. Why is that trend that way? Why is there this mentality that it's all about me? Well, one study that's been done over the last few years is a study done by a professor at San Diego State University. And what he uh, talked about and what he found was this. And this is his findings. It doesn't really surprise me. And I doubt it'll surprise you. But he says this, that one of the main problems that we have with this me in, uh, uh, process of us becoming focused on ourselves is that we have increasingly raised our children in an environment where we tell them that they are special but we don't also tell them or talk to them about their shared responsibility to others. See, if you are, live in a world where you're special, you think you're special, and you have no responsibility for other people's, it nat- naturally raises the level of me focus in your life. Uh, and one thing in particularly caught my attention when I was reading the study, the interesting thing is, is they did studies of children in preschools. And uh, one of the preschools, they actually had, this is truth, There was a curriculum there where every day they would start in their preschool singing a song. It was to the tune of Frere Jaca. Y'all know that tune, right? Frere Jaca, Frere Jaca, whatever, you know, you know, anyway. Okay, I don't know the words, anyway. uh, But they would sing it to that tune. And these were the words they would sing to, these preschoolers, every day. I am special, I am special, look at me, look at me. Thank you. Uh, somebody needs to respond to that. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. You know, if you're constantly, every day, that's what you're told. Look, I'm special. I'm special. Look at me. You become the center of the universe. And the issue that we have to understand, that is not a healthy uh, healthy thing. I am sure if he if he'd have had the song in his day, that would have been Nebuchadnezzar's favorite song. And we will discover that today as we look at Scripture. That was Nebuchadnezzar's favorite song. I am special, look at me. Because he wanted everybody to know how important he was. He was the king of Babylon, which, to kind of put it in context, is the current day Iraq. Okay? When you think of Iraq, what do you think of as rulers? This is not hard. He's dead. Saddam Hussein. Thank you. Okay, Saddam Hussein. You know what Saddam Hussein's favorite title for himself was? The successor to Nebuchadnezzar. That was his favorite. Kind of tells you something about the whole history of that region right there. You know, that that's what he, and, and when you think about how brutal he was, well, to give you an idea, if you're looking back in Scripture in Jeremiah 39, we see some stories about how brutal Nebuchadnezzar was. Uh, as they took over the kingdom of, of, of Judah and began to uh, take over and, and infiltrate and bring the people into there. What he did, one of the times, it tells in, in chapter 39 of Jeremiah, it tells about how he and his men captured the king of Judah and his family. And so what did they do to him? What he does is he kills his sons in front of him. He kills the, the sons of the king of Judah in front of him. And then, then what he does, if that's bad enough, he plucks the eyes out. It says this in Scripture, Jeremiah 39, read it yourself. Uh, he plucks the eyes out of the king of Judah after he kills his son. So the last thing he will ever remember seeing is his son's dying. Now, what a nice guy that is. Another time it says in Scripture that he captures the, another king of Judah. And what he does with him, he's always creative. He roasts him slowly over a fire. Just give you a picture of who this guy was, Nebuchadnezzar. 
self-centered, narcissistic guy who just basically had no concern for anybody else. So today, what I want to do, I shared with you, if you read the story, you read chapters 1 through 3 of Daniel, I want to share chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, open your Bible to chapter 4 because this kind of goes along with this story. Because what is shocking for me when I read this myself is to know that that the person who wrote the words in, in, in Daniel chapter 4 is none other than King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the author of chapter 4. Because it says he is. Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This is the, remember, this is what the guy, and this is shocking. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language which live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an internal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. What has happened to Nebuchadnezzar, this brutal, self-centered guy? He sounds like a worship leader, does he not? He's praising God is what he's doing here. And so basically chapter 4 is is the story where Nebuchadnezzar tells his own story of how this happened, how he changed from this brutal guy to this person who becomes focused upon God, how he went from from a person who had to learn in a painful way that there is a God and he was not in him, to and to learn who the true God is. It would almost be like in our culture, I'd be like this, probably tomorrow morning you wake up and you turn on talk radio or whatever it is that they're on now, and Howard Stern and Bill Maher get up to tell everybody to repent of their sins, you know? I mean, it would be no weirder than that. I don't know if that'd be weird to you or not. It'd be weird to me. Uh, and, and, you know, and if I heard that happening, what would be the first thing you would ask if you heard either one of them say something like that? You'd go like, what's going on here? How did that happen? Well, Nebuchadnezzar tells us how it happened to him. In in chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, he begins to tell a story. And and he says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Now, let me stop a second. (laughs) Archaeologists have have done, have unearthed what they think is the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. It was a very small, humble home, 630,000 square feet. Okay, so he says he was home. Uh, he was uh, in his palace, contented and prosperous. I think I could deal with a 630,000 square foot home. You think that would be big enough for you? Uh, you know, I don't know, but that might de- deal with your needs. But anyway, that's what he says. He said, I had a dream, and it, this dream made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. And so he is, he's sitting here in his palace, this gorgeous and huge place, and he has this terrifying dream. And um, he begins to tell the dream, and basically the dream was this, and if you read the story this week, and it did give a little uh, overview of what chapter 4 was all about, and basically the dream was this, it was about about his giant tree, and it was growing up, and the tree had all these incredible things, Uh, it was a humongous tree, and it was this prosperous tree, and and underneath all the animals were were grazing, and all the things were happening, and all of a sudden something happened, and and uh, something happened to it, and he tells in verse 13 what happened, he says, in the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there was before me a holy one, a messenger cut coming down from heaven and he called in a loud voice cut down the tree and trim off its branches strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit let the animals flee from under it the birch from its branches but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field so he has this beautiful vision of a tree and all of a sudden this vision of this this, this being coming from heaven and telling uh, to, to cut down the tree and then it says this and it was more personal here it says let him be drenched with the dew of heaven 
and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Now, that doesn't make any sense the seven times. It doesn't tell us how long that was. But the issue is that's a term in Scripture. The word, the number seven is often used for complete or perfect. The amount of time it takes to accomplish something, the perfect time. And so that's what it's probably talking about. So basically here, what he's, he has this dream. And he's had other dreams before in chapters 1, 2, and 3. He's had other dreams that's been interpreted by Daniel. And, and then other dreams have been about other people, about the future, about other things that are happening. And probably at first glance, Nebuchadnezzar probably believes this dream is about somebody other than himself. But he calls in his number one dream interpreter, which is Daniel. And Daniel's brought in to interpret the dream. But at first, Daniel is kind of hesitant to interpret the dream. Because when he begins to understand what the dream is about, he understands that he doesn't want to tell the king what he's about to tell him. Because it's not good news. Because he's finally, and finally Nebuchadnezzar says, no, tell me the dream. Tell me what it is. I want to know. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree. And he says, the picture is this, verse 25. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by until you, or the right amount of time will pass by until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Basically saying, hey, you're this powerful king, but guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to be chopped down. You're going to become almost like a wild man. The picture here is almost like he's a wild man, like a crazy person. He's driven away from his kingdom. And he says, you will remain that way until you do something. And that something is this. You will say, there is a God, and I'm not it. Now, in thinking about this, and there's always application for this, I ask the question, what does it mean for us when I read this story? And I want to tell more about the story as we go along today. But the thing is this, I ask the question, is there a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar in each one of us? I mean, not the crazy part, you know, like killing people, okay? <laughs> but the part where he says, there is a God, and I'm not it. But before that, when he comes to a place where I'm God. It's because any time in life where we replace something else as our main focus then we're doing exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. So there's three questions I want to ask us this morning that will help us to identify with Nebuchadnezzar and also help us to ask the question is, am I worshiping the Lord God or am I worshiping the God of me? Number one, what's my motivation? That's the first question. What's my motivation? Why do you do what you do? Nebi, I call him Nebi sometimes, because Nebuchadnezzar is such a strange name. Let's just call him Nebi. I'll call him Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar was always trying to impress other people. He was always trying to impress other people. In chapter, chapter 3 of Daniel, what does he do? For all of you who read the story this week, you know the answer to that. Okay, you may not know what the chapter is. Remember the big giant golden, or big giant idol he put up? Okay, what he does, if you've not done that, have you ever seen VeggieTales? And it's Shack, Rack, and Benny, okay? It's that story. It's the same story. Except in that story, it's a, it's a giant chocolate bunny. But children's, you know, I have grandkids, so I, I watch that, okay? But, uh, but the issue is, okay, what he does in chapter 3 of Daniel, what happens is, is, that, is, that, is that Nebuchadnezzar decides to prove his, his, his kingdom, that how, how powerful he is. So he has, he has built this gigantic 90-foot-tall 
idol. We don't know exactly what it is. We don't know, you know, if it was a a statue of him or of some god or whatever. We don't know what it is. But we do know he had this child. He tells that whenever the the horns and all these things are blown, whenever the music starts, what you're supposed to do is bow down. Everybody everywhere is supposed to bow down basically to this statue, which which is really a symbol of my power and my, (laughs) you know, it's all about him. And so... Nebuchadnezzar was constantly trying to, to improve, uh, impress people uh, because his, his motivation was basically helping people like him. He wanted to impress. Uh, he even did this. He had several wives, and when he wanted to impress one of his wives. And so what does he do? He has built, uh, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. You ever heard of those? Okay. It was supposedly one of the seven wonders of the ancient world just to impress one of his wives. I mean, this guy knew how to give an anniversary gift, all I can say. You know, it was incredible what he did. But he did it not because, you know, he, wanted to, he just wanted himself to look good. So the question is, why do you do what you do? L- let me just personalize a little bit. Why do you wear what you wear? Women, why do you wear some of them shoes? <laughs> They're not, they cannot be comfortable. I, that's all I can say. They cannot possibly... I was so proud of my wife. Where is she? I don't know where she's at. She's here somewhere. But I was so proud of my wife. She came back from shopping yesterday. Two things. One, she saved lots of money because she had this $50 off coupon to Bergner's or somewhere like that. You know, she spend $100, get a $50. I go, that's shopping. That's power shopping. You know, do it anytime you want to, honey. Well, then she came back and she had two pairs of shoes. You know, they were really expensive shoes that were on sale, but they were not fancy. They were comfortable. She's, I'm so tired of wearing shoes that are uncomfortable. And I'm going like, I've only told you that for the last 30-some years. (laughs) So, I mean, why do you wear what you have? Obviously to impress somebody, right? Sure don't wear them for comfort. So why do you wear what you wear? Another question is, why do you live where you live? You know, why do you do that? Why do you drive what you drive? Why are you going to the school for what you're going to school for if you're in college and you've decided a direction? Is it because you're trying to impress somebody? You're trying to make somebody happy? See, for many of us, our whole lives are aligned around our own glory, trying to impress other people. And we try to fool people into thinking we have this whole thing figured out, that we're, you know, we've got it together. Well, folks, let me tell you this. I think most of us are smart enough to know that nobody in this room, including me, has it all together. So why are we constantly trying to impress people? Because we're all flawed creatures. See, when the God of me is gaining ground in our heart, we start feeling anxious about things. And so what we do is we start thinking what other people, we start worrying about what other people think about us. And so we try to prove ourselves all the time. And so the first question is this. What is my motivation? Nebuchadnezzar's motivation was, let's prove to people how powerful and how great a person I am. That was his whole focus. No focus upon God whatsoever early on in his life. The second question we need to ask ourselves is this. What is my source of strength and success? What's my source of strength and success? Uh, (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar gave all the credit for everything that happened to himself. He did. For instance, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, he says, he says this. I think it's kind of hilarious. Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? But my pow- mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, everything's about my and me. He's totally obsessed with himself. See, when we pursue greatness through self-empowerment and give ourselves all the credit, you know what that's called? We've officially become our own God. 
That's the definition of idolatry. We take the glory that rightfully belongs to God. You know, and that's what we often do. We blame God for all the bad things and we take credit for all the good things. Have you ever thought about this? I was talking to some people earlier. Um, there's something in the insurance industry called an act of God. You know what an act of God is? Anybody here want to minister in insurance? No, you don't have to tell me. Okay, I know some of you are. Okay. It's all right. You didn't make this up. Somebody else did. An act of God. What is an act of God? Tell me, what does an insurance company define as an act of God? Give me some examples. Hurricane. Hailstorm. Tornado. Thank you. We're in the Midwest. Okay. I haven't seen too many hurricanes, but I have seen tornadoes. Okay. Earth, earthquake. You know. Are any of those things really good stuff? No, they're all horrible stuff. You know, we always equate the bad stuff with an act of God. It's kind of funny. Like, we blame God. Like, God caused it. I mean, how many of us, you know, our insurance companies don't say, well, call, because you've driven for the last... They don't say this. You, you know, you've had five years of good driving, and it's an act of God, and so we're going to give you some credit towards your insurance. <laughs> Never does that. You know, they still say, well, you've had five years of good driving, and you've done it all. Good for you. See, we always give credit to ourselves for the good things and we blame God for all the bad things. Do we not? Self-empowerment didn't work out too well for Nebuchadnezzar either because when he gets in this this episode in chapter 4 and he has this image and all the things happening, he goes, he's out, uh, he's out basically living out in the, out in the cold. He's, uh, he realizes he had no power to counteract what God could do in his life, even as the king. In Habakkuk 1.11, it says this. It t- talks about people who constantly are focusing on themselves. It says, Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. Basically talking about how they'll be destroyed. That's question number two. Where do you get your source of strength and success? Number, number three. Question number three. What's the purpose of your life? What's the purpose of your life? For Nebuchadnezzar, I think he learned it down the low from, from a, one of his predecessors named Solomon. What was Solomon's main purpose in life? Pursuing happiness. Pursuing happiness. That was the whole thing. You know, as Americans, what is one of our inalienable rights? The pursuit of happiness. The problem is the harder we chase happiness, the more elusive it becomes because our hunger never seems satisfied as people. Besides being a psychology minor in college, when I first started college, I was totally off. I ended up with a religion major and a psychology minor. But when I first started college, I was an architectural major. You know, people change all the time their minds. And, and the reason I was good at design work, but I was horrible in math, and nobody told me you had to know math to be an architect. You know, I go like, what's that to do with designing cool things? But I've always been interested in things and home building and houses and stuff. My dad uh, built, uh, built stuff for years. My grandfather was a carpenter, so I've had this. But I've always noticed over the years how in America, how consistently we've gotten bigger and bigger and bigger in our home sizes. How much is enough? The National Association of Home Builders said this. The average home size in 1950 was what? Anybody know? 983 square feet. Average home size in America, 983 square feet. The average home size in 1970 was 1,400 square feet. You know what the average home size in houses built in America today is? Over 2,400 square feet. 
I ask you the question, how big is it going to get before? You know, in the last two years, actually, national home sizes have gone down, but I think it's because of something called recession. I don't think we've gotten the message. So how much is enough? I mean, if you have a 900-square-foot house today, would you be satisfied? you think, boy, I live in a shack. Guarantee it. We think that. The thing is, it's never enough. Uh, there's another story that I read. I remember this, and, and I pulled it back out. It's interesting, too, about this uh, insatiable appetite that so often we have, this desire for things. You know, and sometimes in our culture, uh, we, we, just, uh, we just eat, eat, eat all the time. But for some people, uh, they do have an insatiable appetite. There's a girl named Kate Kane. Uh, it says in this article, it says, and from the newspaper, it says, has food on her mind all the time. Cain, this is a few years ago, Cain, 26, feels so hungry that she begs, steals, and even eats out of the garbage to get food. And if someone didn't stop her, the consequences would be tragic. I could eat until I die, basically, she says. Uh, for years, Cain's condition was a mystery. Ironically, as a baby, she wouldn't eat at all. Well, actually, at birth, the doctors came in and said that she had failure to thrive syndrome, said her mother. We were very concerned that when Cain gained an appetite, her parents were thrilled. But by age two, she was stealing cupcakes at birthday parties. Um, Steve was in the band, told me he does it anyway. So, uh, so anyway, no, and he's, he's a grown man, but I, he's, he was, I think he was telling a joke. But, uh, but anyway, by age two, she was stealing cupcakes at birthday parties. By age three, she weighed 45 pounds, which was already 50% above average weight at that age. Doctors finally diagnosed her with a, uh, something called Prader-Willi syndrome, a genetic disease caused by a chromosomal flaw. It causes learning issues and muscle weakness, but mostly it causes a sense of never being full or satisfied, and there is no cure for this, this problem. About 20,000 people worldwide actually have this Prader-Willi syndrome, uh, so it's a small percentage, but it's people who never satisfied with food. Now, some of you might say, well, I have that. That's why I cannot stop eating. But... Uh, you probably don't. It's an it's a, uh, impulse control problem that you may have. Um, <clears throat> just tell it like it is, okay? But I would say this. While we may not have Prader-Willi syndrome, we probably have something similar to that that's a spiritual disorder. Because we're always trying to find happiness and security and all these things, different things from things that will never make us happy and never give us security. So finally, we read in Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. It says this. And this is, this is kind of interesting because Daniel's, um, <laughs> Daniel's finally, he's had a relationship with Nebuchadnezzar for several years now, and he finally gets honest with him. He says, okay, this is the deal. You, this is the, 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 the thing you need to do. He says, therefore, your majesty, he's talk, telling this to Nebuchadnezzar, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. He said, you just need to realize it's, you're, you've got a problem. And your problem is you're trying, to, you're, you're trying to find God in the wrong places. There is a God and you're not it. And you haven't figured that out yet in your life. But Nebi basically blows it off. And, and what happens, uh, he's kind of like so many of us so often. It's kind of, they have the God of, of me whispering in his ear. And it's going like, well, the rules don't apply to you. You're the king. Uh, you won't get caught. Or don't worry about the consequences. But what happens when he doesn't do what, Nebuchadnezzar, what uh, Daniel tells him to do? Nebuchadnezzar tells us the story. He says in verse 33, it says, this is what happened. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Now, what does that describe? You can just probably just the, a homeless person has been out and it, and it just becomes like almost unrecognizable. 
But it was exactly where God needed him to be. Because in the very next verse, Nebuchadnezzar says this. At, that, at the end of that time, when this all happened, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Now, how would you describe, how did he describe sanity? What does it mean to be sane? In that moment when his sanity was restored, he didn't go back to thinking he was God. In that moment, he, he said that there is a God and I'm not him. For maybe the first time in his life. And he humbles himself, he repents, and he begins to worship God. His motivation changes. His, his, his definition of, of success in life changed. His purpose in life changed. And in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 37, this is what he says. He says, Then, after all this, once I became sane, then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. And then in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything He does is right, and all His ways are just, and those who walk in pride He is able to humble. Even a king the most powerful person in the world in that day. God helped him come to his knees to realize that he, there is a God and he wasn't it. So the question for me and you today from this passage is this. Are you worshiping the God of self? Or are you worshiping the Lord? Now we can be worshiping the God, worshiping the Lord in some areas of our life, but sometimes we can withhold areas and we worship the God of self. So ask yourself, what is your motivation? What is my definition of success and where do I get my strength from? And finally, what's the purpose of my life? You see, it, it took a lot to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. But when it did, his life was changed forever. The question is, what is it going to take for you and me to realize the same thing? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.